Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them, and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement, and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Climbing Consulting for 2021. In today's episode, I speak to Simon Williams, co-founder of DMW Group and non-executive director at Lancia Consult. Simon spent the vast majority of his career building DMW Group, which he and the team grew from just a few of them, after a rather interesting start to the business, into a company of over 200 consultants today. Having spent nearly three decades building DMW, Simon now advises a range of businesses and is a trustee at his old university college. One of these businesses is Lancia Consult, and is how Simon came to being on the podcast having been introduced by Lancia Consult's Group Managing Director, Jeff Cronkshaw, following our interview for this show. As you'd expect from someone who's spent so long at the helm of a consulting business, Simon has a wealth of experience when it comes to growing a successful consulting firm and leading through both the good times and the bad, much like where we find ourselves right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. In this interview, Simon shares so many insights from his time building DMW and goes into detail on many of the unorthodox elements of the DMW journey, including why DMW almost failed before it got started, and how Simon went from one of the most junior members of the team to leading the business in just a few short years. Their approach to partnership 
and why they decided to take the unusual route of collaborating with other boutique consulting firms to help them all win more business. And Simon's advice for navigating challenging times like the ones we're in now, how DMW was able to overcome multiple recessions, and his advice for helping your business do the same. If you are currently planning your personal or business goals for 2021 and want to know what you can do to take your career or your firm to the next level, or maybe you're simply looking for advice and help to ensure that your business comes out of the other side of this recession as stable as possible, then I know you are going to get so much from what Simon shares in today's conversation. So with the intro done and dusted, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Simon Williams. Simon, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, not at all. It was uh, it was a recommendation by our, our mutual friend and former podcast guest, um, Jeff Cronkshaw, who over dinner when I was talking to him about the podcast and, and who he's enjoyed and who would recommend, you, you came top of his list of prospective guests that I should get on the show. So I'm really pleased that we've been able to do this. Really nice to, to get this in just before the new year. Obviously, the episode will go out just after the new year, but nice to have a conversation as we, we ease into Christmas. So thank you for making the time. Before we go on, and I know as most people who listen to this will probably expect, there's always a sort of a bit of setup before these conversations. And and you've probably are the first guest who've who has said they need to get everything set up because Garage Band, which you're recording this on today, was actually being used for a song you're creating. And I, I didn't have this in any of my show notes. So I want to find out before we dive into the the meat of consulting and everything you've done with DMW, what is this song? Are you is it a band? Is it a you know a solo project? What what are you recording? Uh, you know, it's a solo project. I mean, I've been working with a local band as, I mean, the the guy who actually runs that band asked me to be their manager about two years ago. I'm not sure I've really ever been their manager, but he shared some songs with me and, uh, and gave me some of the confidence to start writing some of my own material. So we've shared some and collaborated, but the song I'm actually working on at the moment is, is a piece of my own. It kind of uh, most of my music goes harks back to the eighties and I'm very late seventies, so this is a, a sort of an homage to uh, Joy Division and a song called Atmosphere. Amazing! I was going to ask what the genre was, but you've answered it there for me, so I'm, I'm intrigued and look forward to seeing when that comes out. And and I know talks to something we'll come on to a bit later about retirement and almost what you've been doing since DMW. You know, you're obviously working with Lancia, but equally sounds like starting your own music career as well. Maybe before we we dive into all of that, though, it'd be great for my listeners who maybe don't know you so well if you could just give. A short overview on your background, your career to date, and yeah, how you got to where you are today. Okay, great. Um, so I grew up in Cheshire, went to a local grammar school called Sandbatch. From there, I went to Durham University and did a degree in physics. And I really hadn't got a clue what I wanted to do by uh, third year. Went along to all of the milk round chats uh, and bits of advisory stuff that, that the university provided and actually spent a lot of time trying to get a job in advertising and I applied to all the big agencies uh, and I did get final interviews with Saatchi and Saatchi and uh, one of the other top 10 places at the time called Bowers Basimi Pollock but uh, no job landed and not that entirely surprising. I think most of the people who uh, seemed to be applying were from the art side and very few had come from somewhere that, uh, that somebody had done physics. So my, my backup stuff was all the software houses as part of the degree 
my last year had spent uh, doing two practical projects, both which had required a certain amount of programming. So I'd, I'd learned some basic and I thought, okay, uh, there seemed to be plenty of jobs on offer in that sector. So I applied, did land a job with Logica, started there and had just about 18 months, two years. Uh, it was a place that was doing quite well at the time, but really not a great place for, I'd say, for a graduate. They had no real graduate training scheme, so there were no training courses, there was no mentoring. Uh, generally, not that great from that point of view. Some good good people I worked with and some really bright people, but and in terms of educating a graduate, really poor. So I, I looked around and... Anderson Consulting popped up, and I think I had had the forms during my time at university, never got around to filling them in. And I think for the first time, they had decided to try and hire some people with a little bit of experience. So I got a year and a bit experience. Anyway, landed the job there and enjoyed my sort of four years there. Uh, and it is a it is a really good place. What well, was then structured career, great education. Six weeks, three weeks in the off- London office, three weeks out in Chicago, learning how to program, um, and then a, a series of training courses where you're flown out to Chicago and, and uh, Geneva, which uh, which worked very well for me. And after sort of two years, ended up um, in Lidhamson Towns, away from home, and uh, on the famous DSS project, which uh, having listened to Michael Marley's interview, I, I referenced, he was up in Newcastle, I was in Lytham. There were thousands of us working on that, uh, and it was an incredible side project. Um, unfortunately, it was, was never ending. So uh, after two years of up there and saying, you know, what's the opportunities back in London again now? And, you know, and the, the better job they did, the more they wanted to keep you around. So I really didn't see any any form of escape. So that's when I decided, okay, I've got to find the only way I'm going to get out of here is finding another job. Uh, managed to persuade my manager at the time to that uh, every other week I think uh, I could work from the London office on a Friday, uh, which just gave me enough time to to sneak out for interviews. I, anyway, I did land a job with a small private bank. So when I handed my resignation in, the guys I handed my resignation in to on the quiet turned around to me and said, oh, really sorry to see you going. You're also on our list of people that we were thinking of talking to because we're thinking about setting up our own company. And uh, I went, oh, that's interesting. And of course, the company didn't exist and I'd, I'd already handed in my resignation. So I, I couldn't exactly join them immediately, but I did keep in contact and I, I did think it was a good opportunity. I really liked the people at the time that uh, were the, my, my seniors at, in the organization so after a year i decided to join them and, and that company was dmw and the one that i would spend nearly all the next 30 years working for fantastic well thank you for that very concise history and i didn't realize that the uh, the journey to dmw had started that year earlier pre-leaving accenture and we'll, we'll talk all about that i i think why don't we start there with the dmw story um, because obviously like you said you spent almost 30 years there it grew the business to a substantial size. But I think that the thing that struck me from our conversation and something I know a lot of my listeners you know, like to hear about is those early days of a, a consulting business, because you know, I'm sure the, the latter days are just as hard, but those early days, you know, there, there's a lot of risk, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And I think the thing that struck me in our first conversation was that 
timing-wise, the business, you know, DMW was launched just coming into the early 90s recession. You know, there were a number of challenges. And I, and I know that sort of early period was quite quite rocky. I'd love to just get your sort of take on how that early period was. Can you talk a bit more about sort of how those first few years were, how the business grew, and particularly how you you managed through some of those those challenging times of the, the recession and just afterwards? Sure. Yeah, so you, you're absolutely right. We started... Uh, in the early 90s, and it was the first recession that had really impacted the IT consulting industry. It was really crap time to leave. On top of that, we we left about the shortly after another group of people from Manson Consulting had left too, and they hadn't put any restrictions on them, but I think they were worried that there was going to be a whole raft of this happening. So they slapped a whole load of restrictions on us about hiring any more people out of Answer Consulting, which is probably quite normal today, but they weren't, those exclusions weren't common at the time. So that put some restrictions on. So we couldn't go back to some of the businesses for six months that had been existing clients for Anderson Consulting. So that made that bit difficult. But over the first two years, it became abundantly clear that the four people who were the original people who'd obviously had the idea up in Lytham weren't getting on as well as I would have liked to have seen. Uh, so the guy who was most senior decided he wanted more of the equity out of the business, which didn't go down well with the rest of us. And ultimately, after I think it was just about two years, they parted company with him. The sort of preceding six months had been pretty crap for the three of us who were the most junior at the time. And I think all of us could see the writing, or felt like we could see the writing on the wall that this business was going nowhere uh, with the, the, the slightly more senior people falling out. And the other two were, were looking around for other jobs. I landed my job first and, and did leave, uh, left for six months. And actually during that time, the did part company with the senior guy and the job I landed, I absolutely detested. <laughs> And it was quite simple. I kept in contact with them and just said, look, this isn't working out. Uh, it looks like you've sorted out the position with the organization and, and let go of the person who was rocking the boat more than we would have liked to have seen. And uh, I rejoined them after l- literally six months. And by that stage, the business was a lot more stable. Uh, I landed a client and stuck there for about a year on my own, sold on a couple of times. And it felt like things were definitely going in the right direction. It still was tough in that the two now most senior guys who had most of the shares had quite a short-term perspective. They didn't want to stay with the business for more than five years. Well, I think they had this idea that they could set up, grow it, sell it after five years. Um, But we were still tiny after five years. So we went through another rocky patch where we did eventually agree a buyout of those two people during that period we also lost two of the other founders say of the original people who had most of the shares every single one of them had gone after five years leaving me and chris who became the md of uh, dmw and still is were the only two sort of people left we had recruited one or two other people by this stage so i think we were sort of then back to about six or seven people and in many ways, that worked greatly in my favour because I was now a, a significant shareholder. We flattened the shareholding out. And from that point onwards, 
things were a lot more stable and the business genuinely started to grow. That does sound like a, a rather turbulent five years. And I guess just help mainly for, for my listeners and myself, you know, you mentioned you joined originally as, as one of the more junior members. So maybe to use Anderson or Accenture Pilot, sort of what, what grade did you join DMW at and, and what grade in inverted commas would you have been when all of this happened and you know you were you were sort of thrust forward into that you know shareholder director position so i was probably too, i can't even remember the names of the grades now for just year, rough then. years then i think so, so. yeah i I'd, I'd, I'd obviously only i think i had two promotions during my time at anderson's and i i joined one level above the standard intake so i was probably three levels up i know i was just beneath whatever the manager level was and you know as far as dmw was concerned we didn't really have any grades at the time there was a kind of you were either a director or you were a consultant and i kind of joined as a consultant but i had some shareholding and after we bought out the two most senior guys after the second set of departures Basically, everything was leveled out. There was a level playing field. Everybody that was left got the same shares, uh, and everyone was essentially on the same level. Got you. And, and I guess the, so. The question I was going to ask still still holds, which is, you'd been there for well, there and back and there for that five years. To your point, that the firm hadn't grown a lot, and you were relatively young when you were you know, buying out the shareholders and presumably taking on some sort of debt or you know, having to use savings for that. Almost. Do you remember any of those questions or, or thought processes you went through at that time? Because obviously it's worked out for you, you know, it was the right decision. But I imagine at the time there were a number of questions in, in your head or the, you know, maybe put my own perspective on it of, is this the right decision? If the business is, hasn't accelerated in five years, do I want to be lumbered with the, the debt of, of the business? Should I actually go back to Anderson's and join and climb the corporate ladder? How did you decide that that decision was the right one for the two of you to really you know, take that business to the next level, commit and you know, build DMW, not build a different business or go back into a, another big corporate? Sure. Yeah. I think at the time it was almost, uh, I had, I felt I had no option but to stick with it. And that, that was partly because over a relatively short period of time, I'd had sort of four, four or five different employers. And I got a lot of stick from friends saying, you know, I was the biggest job hopper and, you know, and it, Whilst that wouldn't necessarily be unusual today, at the time it was very unusual, and, and uh, I was had the distinct feeling people think I just couldn't stick at anything. So that that was one element. I think the other element was so when I did return, things were a lot more stable, and we did make money uh, enough to pay me a salary that was equivalent of what I would have got going back to any of the other firms. So that that wasn't an issue in my mind. I did have some shareholding. Another point that makes sense to me thinking okay if we manage to achieve something out of this this will be worth quite a lot more by the end of that and all of those things came together to make me feel that there wasn't any reason to move on and maybe this wasn't a question as well given the two of you knew each other but given that you'd seen the the split of the, the original founders and all of the challenges that that, that caused was there ever a, a question in your mind or a conversation between you and chris about deciding you were the right partners to take this forward did you did, was there anything that the two of you did to make sure that you were both comfortable that you were making this decision with the right person to to start that and grow that business with no i don't think we did 
I would think actually by that stage, I did know Chris a little bit from my time at Anderson Consulting, not well, but I think there was enough mutual respect in terms of the quality of work that we produced to trust each other that, you know, this, this was somebody that we could, I could work with. And I want to touch on, you mentioned a point that I think is really key around you know, the, the difference in where you were then and the perceptions of, of you mentioned job hopping versus now. And, and I know obviously you do a lot of board advisory work and I'm sure just given the network you built from DMW and Anderson's, I'm sure you have a lot of people you know, just dropping you a message on LinkedIn to ask for your advice. Is for anyone in that position now who's either in a consulting firm that maybe isn't growing as fast as they, they'd like, or, or maybe they're at the second stage where you were, where actually they've been offered the chance to buy into that firm in a, I'll say, in a more unorthodox way. So not as in they've climbed to director and can make partner. It's more you know, like the situation you've found yourself in. If that's come up, I'd just love to know your advice and what almost maybe how you would have viewed that decision today. Because I'm, I'm conscious that for some people, they can get stuck in businesses that aren't succeeding because of a sunk cost bias or because of that, you know, feeling that they should do that. But equally right now and today, I think to your point, there's there's probably more options and and less stigma around job hopping. So it may not change your answer, but I'd just love to know the advice you give to others if anyone's come to you with that to make sure it's the right decision for them in in their circumstances. That's a difficult one. I think that you've got to have enough self-confidence, I think, to think that I can stand on my own two feet. I mean, you, you start and starting a new business requires not only you to, you to do the job that you would have done as part of the big firm, obviously, but all the other bits and pieces that come with doing that job. And, you know, when I left, I had no idea about any of those things. I hadn't done an MBA. I hadn't really had enough experience to know how a business operated at all in many respects, bright enough to understand the mechanics of, of what was involved in it. But there were, I guess there was a fascination and, and uh, about how the business, how to make business work and great opportunities and learning experience. And there is absolutely no doubt that you were forced to learn incredibly quickly. And as long as it stays together and is making sufficient money, then you know, you're getting some positive feedback on a regular basis that something is going right here. And you know, it did take us an awful long time in comparison to some companies to grow to the level that we did, but that allowed a great period of time to, to genuinely learn and change and professionalize the business such that I think, you know, since I've left, actually, I think the, um, you know, they've gone on to even greater things. It's a really interesting point. And actually, it reminds me of one of my former guests, Paul Collins, who now leads Equitech. And he, he made the point that his consulting business, I'm butchering it slightly, but took them something like five or 10 years to get to 5 million, but then only another five years to get to 50. And it was it was those learnings, like you say, you know, taking the positive feedback and, and building in the structures that, that that taught them that made the change. And and I just love to to get your take on that to the point you just made there. You know, the, the business obviously accelerated you know, from what was a slow start. And actually, what were some of those things, you know, either early on, but you know, looking over your tenure, that actually really helped you accelerate? What were some of those pieces of the puzzle that once you found or Chris found or the team found, that actually gave you the platform to accelerate to that next stage of growth? Loads of factors involved in it. I mean, uh, we decided to try to take on some external advice. So we took some non-exec positions over a period of time. A guy called Malcolm Costa, who had been 
the senior partner at uh, Cooper's and Librand, I think, when in his early career. He was a really good fit, uh, a lot older than us, a lot wiser. And he, he gave us some good advice in terms of saying, here are the ways that I think you should develop or could develop. Here's the way, you know, here's, here's some of the things you need to think about at the point you want to exit. Still too early to think about that at the time when he was around. But, you know, he did discuss all of the options in terms of, do you want to go for a float? Do you want to go for a private sale? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, trying to get us to say, what are the things you need to focus on? So <laughs> some of that advice was very helpful. Just in terms of the work that we did, I think initially, and a lot of small consulting firms have this dilemma is do, do you absolutely specialize in something? Because, you know, in, if you read branding, marketing, and, you know, in terms of sales, you know, you really need to focus on some area to, and be an absolute expert to be able to convince anybody. But at the same time, when you're tiny and you think, well, I know a little bit about X, Y, and Z, but not a great deal of depth about anything. One of the things you try and avoid is just to, to, to be special, to be specialized. Um, so that if anyone says, could you do this piece of work? You can just nod so you can say, Oh yes, of course we can do something in that. However, as time went by, we ended up doing what I refer to as a lot of infrastructure type work. So DMW in its early days actually did a lot of things in a lot of area, a lot of things on networking. And this was before the internet even existed. So setting up a global network for big companies was, you know, a mixture of how do you know how to bribe local officials to get your landlines installed? What protocols do you run over the top of that? But that whole I love area, the idea there are bribery protocols in some big corporates. <laughs> I, know, I know we're going back a long time here, Simon. So you know, I'm not suggesting that we, we, we were involved in that, but it, it was absolutely true <laughs> that if you wanted to get a, uh, a lease line installed in Italy, you just got to know the right people to talk to and, you know, they would set a price plus probably something else that one had to pay to get the thing installed inside anything under 18 months. However, so that bit led to us being slightly ahead of the curve when the internet started to take off. So some advice around how do you set up corporates based on using the internet instead of their own private networks and that, you know, if you think along the path of infrastructure, that has now led to everything that's happening in the cloud. So we were probably well ahead of it. And we got into building data centers externally for organizations as well uh, along that path. And so it put us in a good position where cloud is a great area for um, consulting advice and setting things up. So we've done an awful lot of work in that area. Uh, so that that was a big differentiator. And a second, again, this is probably more happenstance, but we landed a piece of work in, in government where we started a quite a serious big data project uh, out of all the, the things that are now called data science, for want of a better word. And we did build ourselves a pretty strong reputation in that just ahead of when everything else kicked off. So those, those two areas of expertise were important. Then in terms of how we restructured internally, one of the things that we had always prided ourselves on is that we didn't oversell things. We didn't get any bullshit from us. You would turn up and we tell it as it is. But there was a recognition, and certainly the non-execs were saying, is you do not spend enough time selling work. And you know, it was obvious when you actually looked at the figures over years 
there would be periods of, I wouldn't call them boom and bust, because they were never as extreme as that. But there were highs and lows. And the lows always coincided with, we've worked for one client for an awful long time when we've farmed pieces of work, we farm the next piece of work. And farming is easy, but the hunting, the next big client is the hard bit. And, you know, is that recognition that we must spend more time doing that hunting bit. And that bit also is fundamental in getting growth rates up for the company as a whole. So we spent a lot more time worrying about how much effort we were putting into the contact management thing, to pushing marketing advice out, and also pushing down a much more open approach to selling across the whole company, expecting junior people to do their part and, and telling them that this is something you need to continue to do throughout your career if you're going to be successful. So when somebody even joined the firm, um, the first thing we would do is sit down and talk about, you know, what's your network? Who do you know? You need to be telling everybody that you've joined us. And so that was one element of it. And our use of Salesforce and the way we started to build some dashboards, recording exactly how many times anybody had contacted somebody in a particular period, sticking up leadership to leaderboards of who, who contacted whom the most over any period of time. And, and calling out people's good work so that if somebody had put in a phone call, gone out for coffee, and that led to some sort of opportunity, and particularly if it was a younger person, you, you know, we would be celebrating that. And there would be a weekly call and we'd always end with a, a story of somebody's celebrated effort. So, yeah, definitely the sales element of it uh, was really important, I think, for future growth. Mm. I think it's a really interesting point and, and it's one I massively agree with and I think you probably doubt, you wouldn't expect me to say anything else running a marketing agency for consulting firms. But I, having worked you know, in firms exactly like DMW and, and seen, you know, I know the consulting archetypes, our industry, if you extrapolate and sort of look at the general, is, is characterized by people who are phenomenal experts, very bright, very ambitious, very driven, very good and analytical. But the one skill that I don't think I'll be offending any consultants by saying on this podcast is we are not a, a group that is known for their sales drive. And I think actually a lot of consulting firms, to your point, do suffer from that focus on farming over hunting and almost an aversion to hunting for you know probably, again, talking about the time periods that, that you were with DMW, the sort of salesman on the phone was a, was a real thing. You know, I still remember having people call about your gas and electricity over dinner makes me feel old sort of now we've now we've got younger members of the team who've probably never seen this but um i'd be fascinated how you operationalize that because everything you've said is it sounds like exactly firstly it worked for you and helped you accelerate dmw i've seen it where clients of ours have really focused on that that has really helped them and some of the most successful consulting firms boutique consulting firms that i know if I was to look at the distinguishing factors, it would be that is the focus and drive on sales and marketing. But I also know that for most consultants, that's hugely alien. And actually, particularly for the older generation of consultants, and I don't say that in a derogatory way, but if you learn to be a partner from someone who was a partner in the 80s, there was a set way of doing things and you bring that way through. So actually, you introducing this sales focused mentality and sales drives to your point around, for instance, leaderboards, that is going to be something that I'm sure people will be listening to now and thinking, my God, I'd never stick a leaderboard up in my consultancy. You were doing this you know, 
10, 20 years ago, you'll, you'll tell me how long, but... It wasn't that long ago, no. That, 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 it took time for us to get to that point, but uh, yes, it did happen. And, and I guess the, the, to that point, the, the question is, is how did you... Firstly, how did you get the board behind it? Because I think, as I said, the top of a consulting firm is usually the hardest layer to shift in terms of getting that sales mindset. And once you did that, how did you operationalize it through the business? I mean, you're absolutely right that most consultants uh, are would regard, particularly when you, if you joined as a relatively junior, even to middle manager, a lot of people would join because they actually looked up into the bigger firms and thought, actually, I don't want to go up to the next level because I spend, I'm going to have to spend more time selling and I don't like selling. Selling is a dirty word. And you're absolutely right as well. I think from my era, the idea of a telesales person or even, you know, you're far too young to know there were actually door to door salesmen who went around knocking on doors. See, so I think a lot of people, would reg- had that image of what sales meant to them, which I think is wrong because sales in a consulting company is all about relationship management and relationships are only built by talking to people. And, you know, you talk to people every day or, you know, it was trying to change the mindsets of the junior people to say, all we want you to do is have more conversations with all the people that you do know on a more regular basis. You don't need to say anything that's overtly salesy. You just need to be contacting them. If something comes up in conversation where you can introduce something, just do it. But you don't have to be on the front foot on the call. It's just about being in contact because typically at at a certain level, somebody has a budget at a client and said, thought, right, okay, we need some external help. If you're not front of mind in that person, the likelihood of you being contacted at all is is vanishingly small. Therefore, you know, you've got to be contacting people on a re- relatively regular basis. So, hence why the leaderboard things came about. How did we try to persuade the troops? So, obviously, there was the, the sort of stick and carrot bit. Well, obviously, the leaderboards, you were going to be embarrassed if you weren't up there. You would definitely, from a reward point of view, from a bonus, you know, a part of it would be based on whether you bothered to do your contact management work. But we did put our focus on training people as well. And we did some really, and we did it internally. We did the classic thing. I've got an introduction to somebody. I've got my first meeting with them. All I've got is a phone call or an email from this person saying, we've got a bit of problem in this area. And so you're going into a meeting with, and basically two, two of us directors would pretend to be the client. Two guys would come in. So they have to give a little bit of a pitch about, DMW, what they do. But you then get into this. Your job as the consultant is to sit and, and it's not about selling it. It's about extracting enough information out of that individual to understand what their problems were and then try to reply appropriately, getting the little message in. Oh, yes. Yeah. We've done a piece of work a bit like that. Did you have these sorts of challenges and, you know, try to pick up whether there's positive feedback coming back from them? So, so that was one element. So we put everybody through that. And the, and the second one, which is slightly more awkward uh, for the individuals, is is actually to practice going actually saying, right, you've just left somewhere or you have a friend who's just moved from Anderson Consulting and they've now landed a line job and you've gone, you're having a cup of coffee with them. So we'd sit them down 
and uh, you know they would have to role play. One would pretend to be the client, and uh, obviously one the consultant, and to have this conversation. Then you say, "How are you getting on? You know, what's it like in the new job?" And it just asking the right questions to extract out of them and to work out what challenges the client had, who they might work for, who they you know who could they introduce us to somebody, blah blah blah, all those sorts of things. Um, so you were trying to practice not being overtly salesy, but asking the right questions to, to work out whether there was opportunities there and or when next to follow up. So we obviously put everybody through that training and that combined with the uh, focus on uh, looking at the metrics on a regular basis. How many contacts did we manage to achieve? How did that link up with what turnover was in the last month? And how did those conversations lead to finally signed bits of work there's so much i want to ask about all of that simon and i will in a second but i just want to hold on the the other part of the question and this might be a short answer because it might be you didn't have this but obviously that was a really structured approach for the juniors and as i say i want to dig into but before doing that you had to get agreement at the senior level was it just you and chris went we need to do this you know we've been told to let's do it or was there more of a debate and, and how did you come to that decision if so we knew that we needed to focus more on sales and had started at least a weekly session where we would go through the, the, the um, opportunities, grading them and doing all the standard stuff you'd expect to do in a sales pipeline. But I think the key change was the last two non-execs that we had. So uh, one of them was an ex-colleague of mine and friend who had gone to McKinsey and had now I think he was at the end of his time at McKinsey when he joined as a, as a non-exec and then he left and, and an ex-partner who was also an, an old friend. And we'd actually invited this guy to join DMW in the very early days, but he'd, he'd chosen to stick. And so Angus from Angus Ridgeway from, from McKinsey, he talked us through how the partnership worked there and the expectations on sales, how they operated. And so he was, he was basically saying, right, I want to see this around the board table. And there's a thing in McKinsey called the 842, which is the ratio of number of conversations you should have had in the last period is eight. Four is the number of things that look like there are potential opportunities. And two are the things that are either sold work or things that you're closing sales on. And you had to talk through your 842. And the other non-exec was also pretty salesy. So, uh, you know, the, both of them had come out and saying, you, you're not spending enough time and effort in the sales area if you're going to try and grow this company. I've not heard of the 842, but I love the philosophy. And I think it talks a lot to the point you made around actually selling is no different from what consultants always do. They just change the name of having conversations. And it's something that we help a lot of our clients with is is how do you take what is a lead, you know, someone who's in today's world, sign up for a webinar, who reads your email, who, you know, follows you on LinkedIn, and actually how do you start that conversation? Because it's the same as what you were doing back then without the internet of, you know someone, they've moved, why not drop them a chat, have a coffee? Just the technology is there now to help you pinpoint it, which I think, you know, talks a lot to what you were saying. And to the point around the junior piece, because I really do like that that training, how did you approach that? Was that something that... You just got together and thought, right, we need to create this structured training. Was it something you brought in? And I'm just, I'm intrigued because you're the first person, the first consulting firm I've ever heard of. And, you know, I'm sure there's others out there, but 
the only one that I've heard of who really has focused on operationalizing training of sales at those junior levels. Because I think that is one of the biggest things that holds consultants back is it's not a skill set we have. And so it's something we don't want to prioritize. And there is always client work. So, you know, I'm sure you would have heard it when you're at DMW, the old excuse of, oh, well, I'm, I'm really busy on client side and I don't have time to go for a coffee. How did you structure and approach that training? And I'm asking really for anyone listening who's thinking for their firm, you know, this sounds brilliant. Maybe the better question is for those businesses you advise, or if you were advising someone, how would you suggest in today's world they approach that? Should they buy in that training? Should they you know, create it themselves? What would you recommend? I mean, we decided to do it ourselves. And, you know, I'll be brutally honest and say, I can't really remember how or why we decided to, to, to take that approach. But the two areas that I'd, I've already mentioned seemed pretty obvious that, you know, practicing how to present DMW. So everyone had to at least learn, here is the elevator pitch for DMW. Got to know it off pat. So if you're standing in the elevator with somebody and you've just been introduced to them, you can do that. Oh, yeah, I, uh, this is the company I work for, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then the slightly longer pitch, which is the thing that you might use in that face-to-face meeting. So those are areas that we thought absolutely needed to cover. We did put our toe in the water with uh, somebody who professed to do contact management and that didn't last very long. We didn't think it was very good. So I think at that point we decided, no, I think we can do this ourselves. After we'd done uh, the first set of sessions, the feedback was pretty positive from the, the, uh, the, the juniors that were involved in it. Uh, and you know, then were requests for saying, yeah, I want to do that. And that was, you know, there's, there's a bit of push and pull coming on here because they, people had started to recognize that we were, were putting more emphasis um, on internal presentations on sales and, and the importance and, and looking at the metrics of those. People knew that they needed to get better at it. So that encouraged people to say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll uh, definitely put my name down for that. And, and, you know, people, I think, enjoyed the sessions. So it was all, all pretty positive. I think then the question that leads me to, and again, this might be a, a short one, but I'm sure in your time, you, you've had to deal with this, particularly if you, you know, where you sort of be, have been an advisor and you're, you're helping people put this type of structure in place is maybe for DMW, maybe for those businesses you've advised, what are some of the challenges you got back, you know, particularly in those early days? Because these sort of initiatives, it's always those first few steps that are the hardest. Actually, what were those common challenges that people sort of leveled at you? And what were your replies? How did you help them overcome those initial skepticisms or challenges to get them on the training, which then helped them see the value, which led to the success you had? Over, and it happens over time. It's not going to happen immediately. And we implemented Salesforce. That was the first step along the process. That started to give us much better data than any in the spreadsheets and various bits and pieces that we'd used before. We could look at how many contacts we had made, how many contacts had turned into opportunities. So, there was, we actually putting in a process where we actually had good data and could track it. Um, that was probably one of the first stages involved in it. There was definitely, you know, when we started to put up the information about how many opportunities there were, people were interested in joining the weekly call that we decided to put together, which is really 
for the senior people, but we thought that absolutely no harm in everybody being invited. And the, the genies would listen because they were interested in what the next possible piece of work was going to be, not necessarily because they wanted to be involved in the sales process of it. So that kind of drew people in. And, you know, then it really guesses becomes a more sterner message that we just simply have to do more of the selling if we're to get the firm growing. And those messages definitely didn't land that well to start with because the old adage that you were referring to, the sort of style of selling that they might have felt comfortable with, we're saying we need to be a bit more front footish about this. We need to be practicing on a more regular basis. You know, people are saying the, the firm culture is changing. It's becoming a lot more sales focused, a lot more aggressive. You know, what's, what's all this stuff about? Because I thought it was all about quality work and, and being proud of the fact we don't overtly sell anything. And, you know, it's then reinforcing the messages to say, yep, okay, that's where we have come from. But if you want to be part of a growing, company and to progress within it unless we continue to sell and you're part of that selling we're never going to grow because one day you've got to be like us and you know at one stage I was thinking we look around the board table thinking well who else generates the sales here um, we need to change that everyone's got to get involved in it and it's it, it definitely worked by the end of it and I think you know post me leaving it's become more and more obvious that the 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 people who have been further down the tree have stepped up and learned from the way the thing had been operationalized, realized what they had to do. Something else, and it's an extension to the sales point, and it's something that felt really unique in, in the DMW journey. And you mentioned it in part earlier about Michael Marnie, former guest on the show, and I know you know well. Um, and it was actually, again, I, I don't know if this was in the context of your sales drive or, or where it fitted into the journey, but when we were speaking prior to our interview, you, you mentioned around one of the, the key elements that helped your growth was was the partnership with both the Barclay Partnership and Pareto. And I don't know if that was sort of born out of the sales drive or, or came before it, but I'd be fascinated to find out more about this because equally like sales is quite alien and, and quite regarded with scepticism, should we say, by our industry. I think the other caricature or characterization I'd say of consulting is we are quite a secretive bunch. I think it's getting better, but particularly when you were running DMW, there was a big focus on our IP, our firm, almost our secrets. And consulting firms were typically, and, and you know, frankly still are, very secretive and very bad at sharing. It's one of the reasons I've run this podcast is to expose more of the great people from our industry to each other. And <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to job. find out. I'd love to find out actually, you know, it, how that came about, and. Again, how you made it work, because I've never heard of a guest who has managed to make such a partnership work so overtly. And I'd love to hear how you made it work and actually how it helped you on that journey. I mean, you're right. My son, coincidentally, works for a part of McKinsey now called Quantum Black. And extracting anything out of him about the work he does is almost impossible. The secrecy is just drilled into him. Even his own dad, he won't tell where he's working or what he's doing. So, yeah, I kind of do understand that. So the partnership piece happened well before some of the things I've just talked about, before we started to operationalize it. And for me personally, it was probably the the thing that stepped me up inside the firm and, and actually helped me sell my first big bits of work. 
and it just felt very natural. I mean, we left Pareto, Barclay, and DMW left Anderson Consulting within probably a year to two years of each other. I didn't know Markle, but we did know the people in Pareto. In fact, in our first year, we shared an office together. So there was an element we have clearly worked quite closely together. So that there's that, that part of it. And then one of the uh, consultants from uh, that I worked closely with uh, in my days up in Lytham St. Anne's left Anderson Consulting to join Barclay as a consultant. And he contacted me and said, you know, would you like to get together? You're with Pareto. And he then also invited another consultancy whose name I now forget, but they were, they were more of a strategy consultancy. And it was, we don't really, you know, we're doing different things because Pareto did much more stuff in the health service, which was much more operational, slightly less IT. So they would bring us in to do the IT pieces they had opportunities for as far as Pareto was concerned. And we got together, I can't remember what the frequency on, but a reasonably regular basis just to talk through what's it like working for a, a startup consultancy. Uh, what are the challenges that you face? And every one of us actually had a different setup in terms of the structure of the company or organization. So Barclay is a, is a proper tiered partnership. We set up as a limited liability company. I think Pareto maybe went from a limited company to a limited liability partnership. I can't really remember now. So everyone was slightly different. Everyone had slightly different perspectives and yeah we didn't really overlap we did a, we were slightly more techie than barclay so barclay regarded as somebody that could introduce to, to farm opportunities uh, that kept some of the other big firms out so we could come in and do that and it it said worked extremely well for me we got introductions beginning to life the um, futures exchange and the guy who was the IT director there then left and went to BP and we followed Barclay who followed him. So in fact, this, this guy had actually started at Marks and Spencer, which you will know was Barclay's first and only client for many years. Uh, I was always gobsmacked that when I first met Michael, they're saying that they, they only had one client. I went, what? <laughs> and they, I mean, they had I, a very fortunate start from, uh, from memory. I, I, I won't spoil it for any listeners who haven't listened to that episode, but I, their their initial springboard was something I don't think you'd see again today. Yeah, exactly. So they, Michael and you know, actually some of his partners that I then got introduced to were very helpful in get, helping us get a foothold into BP. And BP became, for probably 10 years, our biggest grossing client. And uh, we... Because it's such a big organisation, and through those, through those years, they were doing very, very well indeed. We continue to work on many, many projects. Uh, so that partnership approach worked extremely well. And we did get together again as with Barclay and, and uh, uh, another strategy consultancy to put bids together on other pieces of work. And it seemed obvious that you could team with people as long as you weren't really stepping on each other's toes. Uh, there was a greed of trust then that grew up certainly between Barclay and DMW that even as we probably got to and when we grew bigger, we probably did feel that were bits of work that either of us could probably do. And actually, we also competed for uh, staff. There were several times where 
both of us had interviewed the same Anderson Consulting person and given them an offer. Sometimes they came to us, sometimes they went to Barclay. So it, it was it was a pretty close relationship for uh, quite a decent length of time. It sounds incredibly successful and it worked very well. I I love the the idea that you're you're best friends and you're also competing for for candidates. I, I'm not going to ask you to, but I'd love to hear the pitch of of why DMW was better than than Barclay. And I'm sure they, I'm sure you and Michael have shared you know, shared counter pitches and you know over a drink before. But I, I guess again to the sort of similar point around the sales and much more for anyone listening, it worked well. But equally, if I was being cynical or skeptical, there'd be part of me thinking, why would I go into this room with Barclay or Pareto or whoever it is today? Aren't they just going to steal the opportunity from me? Or if they don't steal this one, you mentioned, Simon, you you focus very much in the technical space. I'm sure many people listening will be thinking, oh, well, if there's tons of opportunity in the technical, I could I could take that from someone else or vice versa. Will someone take that from me? Just that inherent skepticism and, and cautious nature. And again, maybe it was just this didn't happen because to your point, you'd, you'd shared an office with Pareto for so long, you, everything had gone well, everything went well with Barclay. But similarly, sort of for firms or anyone leading a firm listening, almost... How would you frame that perspective for today's world? Is it just, look, one plus one is greater than two? Um, or was there sort of any more discussion or, or you know, conversations that went on at that senior level to, to decide if it's right or that others should think about to start these relationships? There's definitely an element about the chemistry between individuals in those companies that will make it work because you fundamentally got to trust each other. And the fact that we'd all started to answer consulting together definitely had uh, a part to play in it. You know, everyone had a similar way of working. And therefore, you know, when you ended up on a project with somebody coming from Barclay or Pareto, you knew what sort of person you're going to be working with because you may have even worked with some of those individuals when you were at Anderson Consulting. So there was that, that was probably quite important. Then it's basically the experience of working together. Once you've started on that and you think, okay, I've made an introduction, and you start on that first piece of work, if that first piece of work pays off and both of you come out of it with a client feeling happy and that you know neither of you is, is stepping on each other's toes in terms of the next opportunity, then that is going to continue to work. And, it, and, and that happened very well in, that, in those circumstances. I can equally point at stories later on in our development where we did get together with a much bigger consortium to bid for a framework agreement to work in government. And it was a big barrage of small consultancies with one lead consultancy that wasn't really a consultancy. It was a body shop. And they landed this big framework and they just stuffed all the opportunities with, with contractors so the remainder of us never got a look in. And therefore, that worked well for them as the leader. They took, they took the risk because they, they were the lead people and spent more time getting the framework stuff put together. But it didn't really work for the rest of us. And I, I'm not even sure we even got a piece of work with it. And then also in my probably last three or four years, the stuff that I did in the defense sector, we were originally contracted directly with the clients and – then they said, no, you've got, we want you to work together. Uh, we want to put up some big frameworks together and we're going to encourage you to team up with other consultancies. 
I now wish I'd gone ahead with some of the smaller firms that I knew through the client work rather than teaming up with, and I won't name who it was, but one of the big consultancy firms, he took the lead and they were encouraged. And in fact, I think they said they wouldn't win it if they bid on their own. They had to bring in the smaller players for them to be awarded the work. But we didn't get anything through that approach either. (laughs) So, you know, they just presumably saw as a okay we've got to get these names these people on on the framework and then uh, happy days we can just so we didn't get any support from them for winning work which was quite disappointing because i thought that was going to be a good opportunity we'd worked very well alongside the this big uh, consultancy on quite a few jobs but they were not helpful in helping us with future work i love the optimism though simon and i think to your point this is life. Some of these things work, some of them don't. Some adventures, opportunities will turn out to be the pot of gold you thought they were, some won't. And actually, I think the overarching message is you've got to try because you miss all of the shots you don't take, so to speak. So even Absolutely. if you take 100 and hit one, that's that's more. So I think it's a really, really key point. And it, you know, it's great to hear. Obviously, you're, you're taking it as that, and I think anyone listening should. And, and maybe to another point around just just let me yeah sure sorry interrupt slightly on that point because going back to what we were talking about um why consultants are are not great salesmen one of the challenges with sales versus doing consulting is when you're a consultant you spend most of your time doing great bits of work and getting positive feedback on a regular basis so it's a win each time sales is like the opposite end of the spectrum you knock on all of these doors you try all of these things and every now and again you have a success. And that is just the opposite end of the way you work as a consultant. Because if you're not getting success all of the time, then you're going to be out of the door. So the mentality is quite different. Certainly. It's a really powerful point. If we have time, I want to touch on sort of more around actually university. And the reason I say that is I think it actually stems from there. And I, you know, I know this as well, having been on a sort of a journey that's included quite a bit of selling is we are particularly for consultants you know you've got a good academic background you've come through school getting a's and two ones and whatever it is and and actually you're used to that success some of us anyway (laughs) well uh, (laughs) some of us some of us and and actually you're 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 used to that success and then to your point consulting breeds further that point of you want to be the best you want to be good and so actually you do stick to what you're good at analytical work you know doing the data analysis doing the presentations my sort of learning of being comfortable with like you say that resilience of selling actually between my consulting stints i i launched a an online estate agency which was great for two reasons one it failed so it taught arrogant 25 year old nick that you're you're not amazing at everything you think you're amazing at 25 which now i'm 32 seems obvious but wasn't then and it got me to do cold calling you mentioned around uh, selling encyclopedias earlier and um or selling door-to-door sorry and trying to cold call people seven o'clock at night to sell their house with you gives you a lot of rejection and not much else and so since then i've been pretty relaxed at if someone says no, I think I can't remember the quote, but it, it it really it stuck with me. And, you know, I always fall back to it is a no is not a no. It's just a not now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, I've also talked to people when they're worried about whether it's have I left enough time since I last contacted somebody? Will they think I'm pestering them? And I always say, I think you, as long as you're polite when you're going back to somebody and you're, uh, you know, being the very unpleasant foot in the door trying to, to demand time out of somebody, 
you could always, always ask them to say, you know, just checking whether you got my last email and whether you wouldn't mind having a call with me. And if they choose to ignore it, choose to ignore it. And, but if you don't keep doing that and let's say you left it for a month and all of a sudden something has happened inside that month where that person suddenly had an opportunity, you're going to feel very foolish that you didn't bother going back to them sooner. It's such a key point, Simon. And actually, this this isn't my example, so I won't name who, but it was a, a story I was told um, by a consulting partner I know, which really, I think, proves this out and more just to reinforce for others. So it's a, a partner who had a fantastic relationship with a client. They'd done tons of work. You know, they'd, they'd been to the cricket or the rugby, I don't know, two months before, and they caught up two months hence. And the partner was shocked because the the client had, had given a significant piece of work to a competitor. And it was for no reason other than the client was busy, because all clients are, and at the time, they just, they forgot, you know, the, the competitor was in front of them, the competitor, I don't know, to your point, had, had messaged them the day before, and they just thought, right, I need this problem fixed. And actually, I think, like you say, the, the follow up is so key, because in today's world, everyone's so busy, we all think so much about ourselves, we sometimes forget about others. And actually, if you are not front of mind, you're going to be forgotten. And it is those opportunities, you know, consulting isn't like buying cornflakes in, uh, in Tesco's, as we all know, no one goes in and looks at everyone. If, if the you know the right fits there, they'll take them without looking at others for an RFP. And I think that talks to exactly your point of just keeping in touch, even if it's a like you say, have you got my last email or you know today's world? Here's a new article. What do you think? That's what can set the difference and really set you apart. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I mean it, I've I've often said that. I mean, people saying, is it worth writing this thought leadership piece? And you could say you could write <laughs> utter horlicks. And nobody actually would bother reading it. But if it just comes across in somebody's email and reminds that somebody that you still exist, and even if they don't read it, the value has been delivered in the fact that you've suddenly appeared in somebody's mindset. It's a key point. And, and actually, for today's world with things like this, with podcasts and you know, with video and LinkedIn, I almost think you can go one step further and actually, you could write something really detailed for one client, send it to 10. But if it hits the one client, you know, in the right way, and it gives them what they want, our industry is such that you mentioned, you know, the client you worked with, one client could be a 10 year relationship, you know, eight figures, in some cases for big consultancies, nine figures It's is one email worth a million quid. I think if you frame everything like that, it, it probably is. Yeah, well made point. Coming to another point around sort of the journey that you went on with DMW and, and areas that I think you'll have quite a unique perspective on. You mentioned at the start of the journey, you started into the early 90s recession. And frankly, by virtue of being in business as long as DMW has been and you were in the business, you saw a few other recessions. And so given where we are right now in the middle of another recession, depending on which economic stats you look at, I'd just love to understand how you managed through each of those, almost were there any consistent steps that you learned from recession one that you took into the others and, and almost looking at where we are now for any firm who is having challenges because of the current environment, what advice you would give them to help them through? So I think the, I'm trying to think of the, the circumstances in this case, well, there were probably two two downturns. The, the worst was probably the two thousand eight nine, <clears throat> in terms of the adjustment that we had to make inside. I think it was two thousand and eight going into two thousand and nine. First and foremost, in terms of the, our business was pretty buoyant. 
So uh, the downturn worried everybody. And yes, we definitely lost business and the government clients we worked for forced us to take a haircut on rates. So all of that was pretty depressing. But first and foremost, I think in any occasion when, or there were only two occasions in those 30 years when the board sat around the table and looked at the cash flow and said, okay, if we're going to pay people, we can't pay ourselves, which is exactly what we did. So we, as the major shareholders, if you're going to be a, a decent business before you let anybody go, you need to put your hand in your own pocket and say that's, that's first and foremost. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, that's the first thing they would think about doing. So it's an obvious point, but that's what we did do. And the 2009 thing turned around pretty well because I forget how many months we didn't take salary for. But by the end of that year, we were back in profit again and paid ourselves back and, and made a, a modest profit that year. So that definitely paid off. The more mature you were as a business, probably made, also made gave you some confidence that actually we can survive this. We've survived it before. So there's a level of confidence that as long as we keep carry on doing the right things with the right clients, we will pull through this. And so following through, particularly on the, we've talked a lot about sales. As long as you're consistent and getting back in contact with people, uh, eventually work will turn up. Keeping morale high inside the business. Yeah. We, you, you do your best. It's quite hard to hide what's going on in the outside world, obviously. And we did lose one or two people during that 2009 period. One of them ended up being a long-term client. So in the end, that, that was a positive move. So if you believe in the product that you're selling, it's just stick with it and don't take your foot off the gas in terms of promoting your business. I think it's probably the best piece of advice. It's really simple, but I think sometimes in hard times, we can forget the basics. And to your point, sometimes you've just got to double down on, on what you're doing. Yeah, that eight four two is is just a fancy. You, know, you mentioned it earlier. It's it's a fancy way of a sales funnel of yeah yeah twenty five percent might drop out, might be ten percent in a recession. It might be five, but like you say, if you just keep going, you know, that will get there. I guess was there anything else? You know, maybe maybe it's a slightly different question because I know to your point, we've you know, we we seem to be kindred spirits on the sales side, Simon. And I I guess maybe the the other side around that sort of recessionary period is how you manage the the culture in the team because by 2008 i suspect you you know you were you were quite a large team how big were you actually in 2008 just to place this firm for for anyone listening just give or take about 30 people i think maybe 30, 30 between 30 40 people something like that so good sized team and also i guess most importantly it wasn't the size of team where just you know, it was you plus two or three people in the office yeah, where you could yeah. have that chat and they saw you daily Actually, how did you manage that that period to make sure that all of your your team were sort of comfortable and confident that you were able to get through? You know, obviously, you as the the directors had sacrificed your salary to keep everyone, but do you remember any of those sort of cultural areas that you focused on to really keep spirits up and morale high? Because obviously, having the sort of sales drive is one thing, but people have to have the, I guess, the motivation to do that and not get downheartened or disheartened that actually, you know, why bother with you know, we're going to be made redundant or the firm's going backwards, you know, whatever those negative feelings were. So business as usual being promoted the way that it had been previously was probably the, the thing that uh, we continue to do. So you, you, we didn't cancel any of the offsite meetings that we had as, in the calendar 
to save any money. So everyone felt like, you know, things were still carrying on just in the same way, despite the fact that, you know, we might be making a, a loss by doing those things. We, we just, you know, we didn't cut any of those costs. Uh, people's training courses and all the other things that you would expect, we just continued. So I, I guess if you're consulting, you look around and saying, I'm not actually seeing any other signs that things are, are being cut back or changing to, for, for, for the negative. And therefore, if you can afford to do those, absolutely should keep, keep them rolling. Again, seems so obvious when you say it out loud, but actually it can be sometimes the hardest thing to do, particularly if you're looking at a, a balance sheet that's going down and thinking, do we need to spend what can be hundreds or for a team that size, probably thousands on dinners and drinks and keeping morale up. But a bit like you say, and I think I know our teams benefited from this simply from the, the COVID environment is keeping some sense of normality during any downtime is is critically important. And yeah, I, when you say it like that, it sounds so simple, but it, sometimes it's not the easiest thing to think when you're in the thick of it. And yeah, and, and you know, you've got to be honest with yourself saying, what else would I be doing? And, it, and you know, that's part of, I guess, the individuals that were involved in running the business. Some people might choose to say, no, we've got to cut costs. And for, in a people business, you're going to lose people if you're going to, if you're going to start doing that before the point you have to let people go. <laughs> I want to come to then the end of the DMW journey for you. Obviously, DMW is, is still going and going strong, but I would dig into more, sadly, as, as always is the case, you know, two hours for these interviews is rarely enough. But I, I, I want to draw us to the end and, and more so again, because I know when we spoke, you know, ultimately you, you, you exited DMW, but I think when most people hear about exits and you talked about the sort of earlier founders approach, everyone talks about EBITDAs, they talk about multiples and, and frankly, it just sounds like someone comes up to you, gives you a big pot of gold, and you just walk off to the, the sunset or the beach or wherever you choose to go. And I doubt the process is rarely like that. And I think in your case, I know, you know there were a couple of iterations that ultimately led to you know, how you were able to exit. I'd, I'd love if you would be able to elaborate on that and explain how that approach worked, the, the different routes that you, you started down, and then ultimately the route you did go down just for anyone who is currently at that point thinking, I would like to exit my business, I've decided it's time to retire or to move on to my next phase. Just how, how did that work and what is the advice you give to others now? So going back to one of the first non-exec, Malcolm made us think about the longer term. And at the time, that was much longer term, that you absolutely have to plan for an exit. So you've got to be thinking of your shareholders, they have to be aligned on that approach. So the timescale has got to be relatively agreed, the sort of size that you want to exit, people's expectations of what they might want to do next as well. All of those things need to be discussed. And we genuinely did sit down and start to think about exactly what it was when we wanted to do it. Because we were different ages, not massively different, but actually probably only five years different between the youngest and oldest board member. But enough also, when you look, took into context how, you know, some of the people who were a similar age actually had much younger children, how long they wanted to stick around versus perhaps uh, me and one other guy whose who's, uh, kids were probably already at university and, or, and beyond. So people did have slightly different perspectives. Uh, so you do have to sit down and go look each other in the eye as well and, and trust what they're saying. <laughs> and, you ask then it, it is a difficult set of conversations because you were starting to talk about some potentially substantial sums of business, depending on obviously the size of your business. 
we had a good idea of what our business was valued at because we'd been approached by a French firm who'd taken us all the way through a process and put an offer on the table. It wasn't enough for some of us. And um, therefore, that was turned down. Can't say there was unanimity at the time about whether we were to accept that offer or not. Well, I'm going to just jump. Sorry, Simon. I've got to hold on that. And this may influence the rest of the story. So stop yes. if it does. But Good. that's, again, a fascinating point because I'm sure that plays out for others and many listening to the show. And I can imagine it's a really interesting dynamic, particularly if some of the directors are happy to and some aren't. You know, the when someone puts an offer on the table, no matter what it is, be it for your business, be it for your house, be it for, you know, something you're selling on Gumtree, your mind instantly goes to what's that going on? And I would love to just understand how you navigated that as a leadership team, because I can imagine if not done correctly, that could be quite damaging to the relationships because in effect, some people would potentially say you're, you're stealing my, my money from me. How, and I, you know, I paraphrase that may not have been the case at all, but how did you and, and sort of your fellow directors agree that this wasn't right and do so in a way that kept the relationships intact and positive and moving forwards? Uh, I've got to be honest and say it was, it was very hard. Um, it was, there's, there's one individual in particular who just didn't want to do the deal. And in some respects, I have to thank that person because the eventual deal we got was quite a bit better than the deal that was eventually on the table. But you, in the round, that so there was a person that was older than the rest of us and he, he wanted to leave earlier than the rest of us. So he was definitely in favour. I was probably uh, I was in favour too. And this one player in particular stuck his heels in and said, no, this is not right for us. Uh, I'm not ready to move on. It's not enough. We're not doing it. And it, 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 we had one very sticky board meeting with three of us around the table uh, trying to call this person out because the, the, the way they'd gone around actually sticking their heels in it hadn't been what we would have liked. He hadn't been as engaged in the process as, as, as the rest of us. And, and therefore, for him to kind of dig his heels in and get his own way was not something we appreciated. However, there was a clearing at that. That meeting ended up with a clearing of the air, uh, which is a positive thing. It also was a good impetus for us to then think, right, okay, we've got to be, instead of just sitting here waiting for the offer to arrive, which is to a certain extent what we had done up to that point, so we hadn't we hadn't gone looking for this. We somebody just came knocking. Then we started to think more seriously. So we actually did put in place a proper buyout process um, with the remainder of the sort of smaller and some non-shareholders to say, right, we'll do a management buyout. So we went through quite a detailed process saying, right, this is the value that we're looking for. This is the time frame. Here are the targets that you need to hit. This is how we will organize the money to see us out of the business. And also allowed for people to exit at different times in it. So it, it looked like a great thing on paper. Unfortunately, the targets weren't hit. Um, so that, that didn't really work. Uh, so Sorry, the, the management buyout. The management, Yeah, the management buyout didn't work. Again, quite a difficult period when those of us that did have the bigger shareholding right okay so what do we do now and and then there was okay we're going to go and get an external we're going to look for external purchase so we then appointed some external advisors they came and did evaluation and then started hawking us about and started introducing us to conversations with other businesses 
And then, of course, there's a typical two-track, um, or the two ways of going. This, you can look to a private equity company to put money in, or you can look for a trade sale to, to become part of a bigger business. Personally, I wanted to do the, the trade sale because typically the earnouts for those were shorter and I kind of got in my head that I wanted to leave in the next two or three years. Uh, PE outfit will typically, you know, we were told five to seven years. Um, interesting enough, I mean, what actually happened with DMW is that they they turned their deal around inside three years, which was remarkably short. But uh, that's a slightly different story. So that was what lent me to exit earlier than the rest because I didn't really want to go through a PE deal. And whilst it was a difficult conversation, um, they decided to put on the table a sum of money that was equivalent to what I would have got from the management buyout I was content with. And, uh, you know, they really went through a process of going through all the legal bits and pieces that one needs to go through. Uh, and that, that did, you know, led, led to my exit ahead of them finalising their deal with a PE outfit a few months later. It sounds like it all worked out in the end. And maybe this, I may be getting too too much into details you can't talk about. So you just sort of put up a sort of metaphorical red flag or or stop sign if it is. But that point around again, you know, in hindsight, it all landed perfectly in terms of you know you got a higher valuation, you got you know what you were looking for, and and you know your your fellow directors did it as well. I just love to know that period where for yourself you were going out on the the management buyout terms, let's say, and I, I'm conscious there'd been some resistance earlier from from one of your fellow directors around you know, exiting at a certain value, and and ultimately you know anyone leaving will take a bit of the pie with them and and there's conversations around that in terms of how did you navigate that process you know i imagine it was still a little raw after the the first one and were there any tensions how did you navigate that and i guess obviously someone if actually it wasn't we we stopped there but i just love to know how you navigated that again to get the exit that you wanted one that also worked for your fellow directors and and most importantly leave all the relationships you had intact and i say that because i have heard of deals like this where the relationships don't end up intact or frankly the deal process can lead to relationships breaking down and ultimately firms breaking down i'd love to hear how you and the the team were able to navigate that in a way that worked out for all of you yeah i mean in the end they gave me an offer that uh, exceeded my personal expectation because i didn't think that that was what would get put on the table so i, I assume you didn't tell them that at the time of course not <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you, you always think afterwards, think, shit, I wish I'd asked for more. <laughs> anyway, no, but it, it, uh, I knew what uh, I felt was enough to, to make me comfortable. And, you know, that that is essentially what arrived. Uh, I, I, you couldn't deny that it was a difficult process. And I still pretty close mates with at least two two of the three people involved in it. So it, it didn't didn't destroy that relationship. But yeah, I can't deny it was difficult at the time, and you know nobody going through that. Um, I think they'd be lying if they, they said anything else. But you, you know, the, the the thing that you do notice once once the process sort of started, uh, how quickly your your influence because you basically say, right, okay, you're leaving, therefore you don't count any longer, and that bit lands on you quite quickly thinking, okay, I can't sit around the board table and say anything that is meaningful any longer because they know I'm going. Now, of course, 
you know, junior people in the firm didn't know that, but I had to sort of carry on and put a, the uh, brave face on. How did you reconcile that? And again, I ask for, you know, no one in particular, but that is the other challenge I've heard some talk about, or twofold, and, and this might be a, a sort of interesting juncture, it might not, is particularly if it was your business, you've been in it for as long as you have, you know, it it, it must have been like a, like a child or like, you know, it's a it's a real attachment you have, and suddenly being outside of that world, how do you reconcile that? Because again, that's something I have heard others speak of is that challenge of suddenly you've had your, you know, your big win, your windfall, whatever, you know, whatever you call it, but suddenly you're no longer the director of the business. You're no or you're no longer, you know, as you were giving the example, you're no longer around that board table. And he, almost I imagine that accelerates as you leave the firm because suddenly you're going from 50 hour weeks full on to, you know, watching cash in the attic or whatever it is on a Monday. And, and I'm sure you had better things to do than that, but, you know, I, I sort of... <laughs> Never resorted I, to that. <laughs> <laughs> you're missing out. That was that got me through GCSEs way back when. But, um, yeah, how, how did you come to terms with that? And I'm sure, again, for anyone listening who's going through that period, what advice do you give to others? Because I'm sure people have come to you in that position. I mean, one of the reasons that I was looking to leave was because I think I'd, yeah, I'd been in the business for 30 years. I don't think I felt I was learning anything new. And, you know, at that point, I can recognize that unless I'm learning something new, I'm feeling excited about coming into work every day. <laughs> My value is declining personally anyway. It was time to move on. And from that point of view, uh, I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever. You know, I'd set myself this target of leaving, uh, exiting by 55, and I exceeded that target by a year <laughs> with a value that I was content with. So all of those things were, I was, was happy with, but you're right out with 30 years, you know, that the, the times when you, you know, from the first difficult conversation, which, which says we're prepared to put an offer on the table and me saying, uh, admitting that I'm prepared to listen to it to, you know, the, the final day when you walk out of the office and you've just the money's in your pocket and it's the last time you're ever going to be in the office yeah you are uh, without doubt it's going to be an emotional experience uh, you know i had a very nice dinner actually after i'd left the office for the final time with uh the other directors and the the, the next layer down of the guys that some of the guys i'm still in contact with who, who subsequently left the firm and it was a very that that was quite nice and so there was uh, a pleasant send-off that didn't go out with my tail between my legs. It, it, but you're absolutely right. You, you, you've spent a long time working in a business and you leave thinking, okay, this is a bit sad. And maybe last question to, to the point around this, the next period that you find yourself currently in, and, and the answer to this might be your, you know, the, the Joy Division tributes that you're, you're making on GarageBand. And, and I think I wish we had time to go into what you're doing with your, your old university and some of the other things, but I'm, I'm mindful of your time as well, Simon. Is, how are you approaching the retirement period? And, and equally for anyone who is where you were you know, that few years ago, anyone leaving that firm that they've sort of been working in for those 30 years, they've, they've built up or you know, maybe they, they haven't built their own firm, they've been a partner in a big firm for that time. Almost, how have you made, made retirement work? Because I've had previous guests who, who frankly retired, realised they hated it and just went, and went back into work, went built another firm. And, and I'm just fascinated how you've navigated that period to work for you, or maybe you're still navigating it, I don't know. 
six or seven years before I left, I trained as uh, an executive coach. And I, I kind of used that as a bit of a sales tool for, at DMW, offering free coaching for the uh, larger clients that I was involved with. And it was a great way of getting to know people. So it was super way of uh, squirreling out new opportunities. That's a great BD tip, by the way, for anyone listening. That's if you coach yeah, your clients, you, find out all the things going wrong, and then sell, sell them back to them. It's exactly. I, I, and I, I actually genuinely pitched this as an idea at one stage that because uh, some of the clients that we worked with have recognised that with the people that we brought in tended to be slightly more experienced than the people that they ended up working with. So there was a, can't we coach these people in better? ways of managing their own projects. So I was trying to sell it as a service line. And in fact, it's interesting, Michael Marnie also trained as an executive coach uh, about the same sort of time. And they they, they did something similar. They actually genuinely put it as a service line for, for Barclay at the time. So anyway, I started down this line and, and that had triggered – I was partly triggered to do that because I'd become more and more interested in psychology and basically what made people good at what they do. And uh, I've read tons of books on on those that topic, and you know, if you look at my website peakflow.zone, you'll you'll see something that basically is offering a service that is based on a, the executive coaching model, but t- tries to take in some of the science around what is it that makes somebody good at what they do. And you know, I, I taken that from there's a guy called Chicksint Mihai, who was a uh, uh, psychologist and came up with the concept of flow, where the peak flow thing comes from. And in my opinion, they, unless you're in flow on a regular basis, you're going to be slightly, you're going to be discontented. But being in flow is this strange balance between the challenge that you're faced with and the skills that you've got to deal with it. And when you start sitting outside of those two things not being in balance, you either are bored. So you, your skill set is too high for the challenge in front of you or you're scared and worried because the challenge is too high for the level of skill in front of you. So you've got to think about the balance of these things on a regular basis. And for me, it, you know, it's not just work, it's in your home life. And for some people, actually, a job can be the thing that brings in some money but never gets them into flow, but it allows them the time in their personal life to do things that do give them the flow and satisfaction <clears throat> for some people it's the other way around and you know those are the probably the challenging people from a retirement point of view because you get all your buzz from your job and i didn't i got and i'm a big sportsman uh love music so i had lots of things that i enjoyed doing that weren't part of the day job and but i think for people who go into the job and say you know i really quite enjoy what i'm doing or i wouldn't know what to do if i didn't you know those are the people really do need to think if they are going to retire, they need to have a think about what they're going to do. That's they start doing something different before you, you, you leave and, and work out what it is that you enjoy doing. That might not be the current job, but if it is the current job, then you know, maybe it isn't. It's the moving to lots of non-exec roles where you still feel you're part of the big board and you, know, you can use some of your experience and still feel you're, you're going into work every day. There's so much there if we had time, Simon, to dig into. But I think your your point on flow is is really powerful. And actually, that piece around if you are planning to do this, to you know, take the next step in your your journey, to step away from your firm, actually 
building the raft before you need it in the form of a hobby or a, another thing that you do, like you say, means that there isn't a void because um, often it's the voids that you know cause the challenges. Whereas if you've got something to go into, you know that that flow can continue. And it actually brings us quite nicely onto the the last questions for today. And you mentioned around having done a lot of reading and research on on what puts people into flow and, and peak performance. Um, and it plays very nicely into a question that I ask, ask all my guests. And these are questions that I ask all my guests, it's worth saying. And that is on books. What is the book or books that you've given most or recommended most? And, and why is that? Yeah, well, uh, that's <laughs> a nice segue because the the book I probably read first that, that made me think about um, – what makes somebody good at what they do was a book called Bounce by Matthew Syed. Uh, so I, I, I don't know where you, Matthew is writer in the Times. He's got a podcast that's on the BBC now, which is very amusing that he does with Freddie Flintoff and uh, what's named Savage the Footballer, which is very funny at points. Uh, and Matthew Syed's the seri- more serious one of the group. But Matthew's got a great writing style. And Bounce is all about how he managed to become the European uh, champion at table tennis. Hence, he's known as the ping pong guy in in, in the uh, podcast. Uh, but it, it's a very self-deprecating, and it, it talks about this balance of what it is that you can bring to the table that gets you to the top, plus a whole bunch of things that are, frankly, serendipity. You know, He talks to the fact that the primary school he was part of that had uh, a national tennis coach uh, at his primary school. So he had somebody that uh, encouraged this sort of nascent talent. And then one of the more famous Chinese um, table tennis players, I don't know whether they managed to escape China um, and defect, but they ended up living near Matthew as well when he was a later teenager. Um, and it again helped, helped him through that. He had a younger brother uh, who was only about a year or so younger. And the two of them both played table tennis against each other on a regular basis. So all of these things came together to, to, um, to help them along this journey. So he tells a great story around that. And he's a great story writer. So Bounce is definitely a book. Actually, in terms of book I've given to people, I've read all of Matthew's material and I did buy, I don't know how many copies of his last but one book called Black Box Thinking to a client, which is uh, really about um, continuous improvement. And he, he tells some great stories in that. And I handed out to my client because there was lots of thinking about how do we improve this business at the time. So uh, I just went around giving it away. <laughs> I love that. And sometimes it's, it's a really powerful way to help clients think differently. If you have a book, particularly by authors who are much better known than, than yourself or Ed, you know, myself, having that book, which, which highlights those points. And I have I have read Bounce and I I think Bounce yeah, as as Matthew says it it's not purely talent it is everything you've said absolutely there's a really powerful point in there for anyone listening as well of obviously you know, his example was how just you know fortuitous circumstances when he was a child meant that this happened but actually the same point holds true as an adult and actually manufacturing those opportunities you know if you can work with the best people in your consulting career you can get the right opportunities and exposure that can help you accelerate in our terms in the same way as like you said having the you know the tennis coach the chinese ping pong player i think the other one was they they had a, a tennis didn't they have one they had a ping pong table in their garage and the, the ping pong club was across the road it's sort of 
all of these things that you know, came together. And, and actually, Simon, so, mean, it comes quite nicely to the next question. And you might just tell everyone the back of this one to go and read you know, Matthew Syed's back catalogue, <laughs> and you're very welcome too. But this one is a, a question that, I, again, I ask all my guests, and I really enjoy the differences as well as the similarities. And, and it's quite simply, you've got three people in front of you. One is at that analyst level. So you know, they're a graduate, they've just joined a consulting firm. One is manager level. So I guess probably similar to where you were at Anderson's, you know, they're six, seven, eight years into their career. They've they've got far enough to have choices, but not far enough to be sort of right at the top yet. And then the third person is someone who is in Anderson terms, a director or might have been the same in DMW. They, they're approaching partnership. They're you know, the top of the tree minus one, and you know, they are approaching that partner point. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? I think at the most junior level, it might be a bit of a personal regret that uh, I didn't get the opportunities to travel when I was young, free and single. Um, so I think at that beginning bit is grab every opportunity that comes your way. Uh, don't be a, don't, don't say no. Um, you know, if you've got an opportunity to go and work in a new place and culture, you will learn so much from doing that different ways of thinking and you know it's just the great opportunities of being somewhere else instead of just being wherever you've been born and brought up so that's the analyst i'd say mid-career time to be a bit more boring uh, you need to be making a name for yourself in some area and just you need to have a think about what am i good at what am i told that i'm good at so is what i think i'm good at what do people think i'm good at uh and what do I enjoy? And if you can work out what the confluence of those things is and think, right, okay, that's where I'm going to specialize. But at the same time, don't forget all of the other stuff that's going to make you um, a good consultant, which we've talked about, which is manage your network. Fantastic. And the third person? Approaching partnership. I think one of the more challenging bits, and it was possibly because of the size of the business we had that made getting feedback challenging. But I, I think probably most big firms are not very good at doing it. But I'd say get yourself a coach. You want to sit down. You want to have somebody you can trust to talk to, somebody you can ask you some challenging questions, but he's on your side. Because I think, you know, if you sit down, most of the HR processes are all about going through the standard thing. And, yes, you might have a mentor, but they're still a bit of a competitor at the same time. Uh, I'd say a coach – a good coach is going to be you know, always on your side, asking the challenging questions and, and giving you some of that feedback that possibly is quite difficult to get from working in the company. I think some great advice there, Simon, and particularly that, that last point um, about coaching. I've, I've had previous guests say, and I'm sure you've heard it, that consulting is made up of insecure overachievers and actually having a coach to help you with those those insecurities and challenges and, and as you say, in a neutral and I guess, on your side environment, yeah. I know personally has, has been massively powerful for me. And I'm sure you you do the same having become a coach. I doubt you would have done that if you hadn't seen the benefits yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, Simon, this has been great. Really enjoyed our conversation and it's been great finding out about the, the journey that you went on with DMW and everything you've, you've shared from it. I think the last question is quite simply for anyone who wants to find out more about you, everything you're doing now, maybe wants to, to get a copy of your, your track when it's, it's ready to launch. <laughs> Um, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, well, my music's definitely not published yet. But <laughs> yeah, I've already mentioned that there's a web, my website is peakflow.zone and email address is simon.williams at peakflow.zone. 
and uh, you can learn a little bit more about the sort of my approach to flow that we've that I briefly mentioned in our chat. But um, thank you very much, Nick. It's been great talking to you, and uh, I look forward to uh, listening to this. No, likewise, Simon. I've been brilliant talking to you. I'll put details of your website, I'll put details of your email address in the show notes so anyone who wants to reach out can. And like you said, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Um, and all that's left to say is, is enjoy the rest of your week and have a great Christmas. And you. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk. And I really look forward to hearing from you.